This presentation is from UX Australia 2018, held in Melbourne. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Thank you. I have no idea what he said. I was jerking around with the technology. Um, <laughs> but I assume he told you that I walk on water deep water. So, um, hi. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you, Jenna and Steve. Steve saved the last slot for me, so I get a chance to be a nervous wreck through the whole conference. But then, you know, this is the, this is the spot, you know, that everybody waits for. And so it's a, it's a compliment to me, and thank you. This is one of the best run conferences that I've attended. This hotel is really nice. The food has been outstanding. Things have run smoothly. The content has been spectacular. I've learned things. I've been taking notes wildly. And um, uh, it's, this is my first time in Melbourne. This is my first time in Australia. The, um, before I came here, my friends and, and associates said, you're going to love it. This, Melbourne is a, is, a really, is a very special town with a lot of character. And remarkably, it has lived up to its hype. And uh, my wife and I have been enjoying it very much. Yes, coming down here where, where women glow and men chunder. <laughs> and... <laughs> I love this place. <laughs> Listen to NXS all the time. Um, so uh, the um, maybe not all of you know, but my wife, my business partner Sue Cooper, and I uh, sold Cooper, our interaction design consulting company, last year. And um, so we're in, uh, we sold it to a, 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 an, a, an IT services company based in Bangalore called Wipro. And, uh, and it was really an interesting deal because it was an arm's length deal. And we kind of walked away without any ties to that organization. And so Cooper is now a separate thing. And Sue and I are a separate thing. And it's a, it's a delightful opportunity to look at new things. And um, the, you know, one of the themes here has been, has been epistemology, is how do we know what we know? And several people, Lauren, uh, and Farai especially, and Eva Loda have all tackled this and, and certainly uh, Bill just did, is how do we know what we know and how are we going to know what we're going to know? And that's certainly been a, uh, a challenge for me over the last few years. So, while we divested ourselves of our company just recently, seven and a half years ago, we moved out of Silicon Valley, a place that we had been in for 28 years. And we moved to this, this bucolic branch, 50 acres of, of a beautiful rolling hills uh, north of San Francisco. And it's been a, a wonderful opportunity. When you, going to the country, I've been a suburban kid or a city kid all my life, and I know nothing about growing things. And moving out to the country and living in, the, in, 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 in a world of, of, of crops and animals and, and people who think on a, on a seasonal schedule rather than on a trade show schedule, has been really interesting. So I've been exposed to um, systems thinking in a way that I had never seen it before. I mean, when you immerse yourself in nature, you begin to get a grasp on what complex systems really are, far more so, I think, than even in the, in the tech world. So that's been a, a, a great learning experience for me. It's, it's given me a lot of perspective, and it has been a provocation for me to think about uh, about what 
how should we behave as custodians of the tech world. But what's even more interesting to me from a how do we know what we know point of view is leaving Silicon Valley behind was a great revelation because I've been up to here in Silicon Valley all my life. And, and it's wonderful to step away from something that you're immersed in. That's when you begin to have real insights into it. Now, I certainly knew that Silicon Valley was, was um, influenced by money and influenced by people who are influenced by money more than they are, say, influenced in service, by service. And um, so it was very revelatory to be able to step back and see just how much of a bubble the tech industry lives in and is immersed in. And that's been a real source of When you, you, when you see something that you know intimately from a new point of view, that's when the insight really comes. And it's been very educational for me. Um, it gives you insight into what were previously blind spots. So I get to play with chickens. Yes, I do. That's, and it gives me great insight. So. <laughs> Chickens, those are the uh, blessed sisters of the happy breakfast. They, um, so the reason why I have these pictures here is, is, is because the ranch has been such a source of inspiration for me. And so I, I've used pictures of the ranch throughout this, this uh, presentation to, to illustrate it. It just seems perfectly natural to me. Okay, thank you. Now let's start out. I want you to do some thinking. I want you to do a little thought experiment with me, if you will. I'd like you to imagine that you work at a giant social media company. And every day, you access massive collections of user data, analyzing it so you can give users exactly the posts that they most want to see and not the posts that they don't. Your work is so good that you've created a targeted advertising platform that's nearly perfect. Then one day, you discover that Russian government hackers have used it to influence an American presidential campaign. Using the psychological profiles that you created, the Russians identified susceptible end users and flooded their feeds with hate messages, fear-mongering, and outrageous lies about progressive candidates and organizations. Then you realize that your work directly contributed to the destruction of America's representative democracy. I like to start with a high point. <laughs> or, or imagine, please, that you were a staff researcher at a major computer software company. You've been working on real cool learning algorithms for conversational user interfaces and created a chatbot to show off your, what your AI is capable of. Your boss is so impressed with your work that he lets you deploy the chatbot on the web. Ah, but hackers discover your chatbot and begin filling it with lies, prejudices, and telling it terrible things. Within one day, using the software that you wrote, all your chatbot can do is spout racist, misogynistic, and hateful venom. Your boss is forced to disable it immediately. Then you realize that your work can easily be turned into something very destructive. Or imagine with me that you have became an intellectual property lawyer because you want creative inventors to be inspired and supported. And you worked for years to empower innovators to protect their ideas. And then one day you discover that the overwhelming majority of patent lawsuits are pursued by patent trolls, those who patent ideas but never actually make anything. They just wait for someone else to create a product and then they sue them for undeserved royalties. 
That moment you realize that your life's work has empowered a few greedy people to engage in legalized extortion. Or, this could go on all day, imagine that you are an expert in linguistics and have spent years working on new spell check algorithms. Your work involves machine learning, artificial intelligence, and very clever indexing methods. It's deployed globally on Apple computers. And then one day, it's discovered that it autocorrects some prescription drug names into completely different drugs. When duloxetine becomes fluoxetine, there's a high likelihood that no one will notice, but that someone will suffer from taking the wrong medication. It's at that moment that you realize that your innovations have brought harm to innocent people. Why is this happening? Is it inevitable that our coolest technical achievements become agents of evil? That's the question. My answer is no. I do not believe that it is inevitable. And for the rest of my talk, I'm going to talk about practical methods to avoid creating high-tech products that enable this toxic behavior. The technology that we build has certainly made people's lives easier and better, but unintended side effects happen more and more often and tear at the fabric of society. We are good people and we do our jobs with the best of intentions, but we find to our dismay that we have enabled bad behavior and bad outcomes. Where did this evil come from? Are we evil? I'm perfectly willing to stipulate that you are not evil. Neither is your boss evil, nor is Larry Page or Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates. And yet the results of our work at best, our best, most altruistic work, often turns evil when it's deployed in the larger world. We go to work every day, genuinely expecting to make the world a better place with powerful technology, but somehow evil is sneaking in despite our good intentions. Like the way Dr. Frankenstein didn't understand the monster that he created. There's a mechanism at work here that we don't fully understand. And we need to deconstruct this phenomenon so that we can recognize it and prevent it from happening again. In the 1940s, J. Robert Oppenheimer headed up the Manhattan Project, the largest scientific effort the world had ever seen. His job was to invent the atomic bomb so that the United States could use it to end World War II. But when Oppenheimer saw the first atomic explosion, he realized that he had created something terrible. This was Oppenheimer's moment. Not only was he a god of physics and science, but now he was Mars, he was Ares. He had become a god of war, bringing chaos, suffering, and death. Today, we, the tech practitioners, those who design, develop, and deploy technology, are having our own Oppenheimer moments. It's that moment when you realize that your best intentions were subverted, when your product was used in unexpected and unwanted ways. It's that moment when you realize that even though you aren't racist, your algorithms might be. It's that moment when you realize that your software, designed to bring people together, instead is driving them apart into tribal isolation. It's that moment when you realize that the social and economic checks and balances that prevent excess and abuse just don't apply anymore. Like Dr. Oppenheimer, like Dr. Frankenstein, you realize that nothing can harness your creation, and it's beginning to run amok. My first thoughts are, who can we blame? We can't blame the technology, because it does amazing good things for us, as well as bad things. It's easy to blame the founders, your co-workers, the venture capitalists, your annoying boss, but they're just as troubled by this as you are. 
Tony Fidel, the founder of Nest, wants a Hippocratic Oath for designers, where they pledge to work ethically and do no harm. Sam Altman, the president of Y Combinator, is writing an ethics constitution. And Bill Gates is giving billions to charity. Our narrative-seeking, storytelling brains want a villain. But this isn't a Disney movie, and Cruella DeVille isn't coming for our puppies. Really, there's no one to blame. It's a systems problem. It's as though the titanic ship of technology is sinking, but we never hit an iceberg. We're filling with water, but nobody can find the leak. We keep searching for the giant rip in the hull caused by the evil iceberg or the evil captain or the evil shipbuilders, but we find no evil and we find no giant hull. Yet the water keeps getting deeper. Trying to find a single point of failure or origin of malice only works on simple systems. But all of the tech products we build are complex systems, and their networked environment is yet another level of complex system. The water, the evil, isn't coming from one big hole, but from a constellation of tiny ones, like a hundred million microscopic laser-drilled holes in the hull of the Titanic that collectively add up to a giant gash. And this is just what a systems problem looks like. Systems problems are by nature distributed ones, and their solutions are distributed too. We put those millions of tiny leaks into the system. There was no malice, no evil. That's why we have, have to apply our efforts to preventing tiny leaks, rather than trying to predict and then stop a single catastrophic event. The technology we use changes so fast that it renders our good intentions irrelevant and inadequate, no matter how well-intentioned our good work permutes into bad. Our innocence simply isn't sufficient. We have to master this system. We need to identify the weaknesses in our products and business models when they're tiny embryonic things. We have to get ahead of this phenomenon because once it emerges, we're too late. And we need to do it in a way that transcends the technology so it applies to everything, so it's long-term, so that it is sustainable. The blogosphere is awash in long-term, long-form commentary asking how we can bring ethics back to technology. People tell us to be good, but they don't tell us how. Okay, there's a lot of work to do, but first we need a clear goal. The founders of Facebook, Google, and a thousand other companies, large and small, have as their primary goal to make money. Their second avowed goal is to not be evil, to do no harm. There is abundant proof that this simply does not work. When your primary goal is to make money, all other goals devolve into mere words. Don't be evil is too vague, too simplistic, and too hard to relate to the daily work of tech. Besides, it's always in second place, and it always loses to the imperatives of making money. We need a new goal, a new rubric for success, one that makes us better citizens first without stopping us from making money second. So here's my proposal. I want to be a good ancestor. My goal is to create a better world for our children, both yours and mine. Every day I ask myself, does what I'm doing make the world a better place than when I found it? When you think like a good ancestor, you're forced to think about the whole system. You can no longer maximize isolated measurements at the expense of others. You can no longer excuse bad behavior in the interest of profit. Now, conservative political dogma says that you can either make money or you can be a good citizen, but not both. This is a lie. 
You don't have to behave badly to make money. Virgin, Costco, and Patagonia are all proof that you could be a very profitable, good ancestor. As Steve Jobs said, profit is a byproduct of quality. People are very loyal to good quality and not at all loyal to products that behave badly. So while there's value in making money, I value even more making the world a better place for our children. By making good ancestry our primary goal, we can work to prevent our products from turning to the dark side, and we can still build profitable businesses. Every day, instead of saying, do no evil, ask, how can I be a good ancestor? Being a good ancestor is my goal, and I want you to make it your goal, too. Okay, while the first step is having a clear goal, there are many subsequent steps needed to solve this challenge. It's all giving me a strong sense of deja vu, that sensation where you feel like you've been there before. 25 years ago, as personal computing was exploding on the world, it had become clear that technology was hard to use. Everyone knew that we needed to make software user-friendly, but no one knew exactly how to do that. Back then, plenty of smart people thought it couldn't even be done. Someone had to define user-friendly in measurable ways, then develop a taxonomy for the field, invent a set of tools, create a process framework, establish clear examples demonstrating the benefits, train a cadre of skilled practitioners, and then take that show on the road and proselytize it. Well, that's what I did for interaction design during the 90s and the aughts. Our presence here today proves how design has become an important role. It's well known, it's trusted, and it's omnipresent. Now it's time to do the same thing for being a good ancestor. Renato Verdugo, some of you met him on Wednesday, is my brilliant young Chilean collaborator. And we're developing a framework and tools that we call ancestry thinking. The first step is awareness of the problem. It's vital that practitioners pay attention to how their products <clears throat> are applied in the real world by actual users. The second step is creating a language, a taxonomy, that lets us see where and how those millions of tiny holes get drilled into the hull of our technology. So far, we have identified three main vectors by which bad behavior creeps into your product. Assumptions, externalities, and time scale. We examine these vectors by asking ourselves three hard questions. First, we must ask, what assumptions are we making? Whenever we design a solution to a problem, we base our thinking on certain assumptions. If we don't rigorously examine all of our assumptions, our intentions can become lost, and we open the door to bad ancestry. Someone was making assumptions when they created their disaster re relief website requiring users to have electrical power and Wi-Fi. Scarce things in a disaster. Someone assumed that the white engineering staff was representative of the people who would use their new sensor-equipped bathroom soap dispenser. It works fine if your skin is white, but it fails to detect black skin. A good assumption can turn bad over time or in different circumstances, so you have to identify, inventory, and regularly re-examine every assumption you make. The fossil fuel industry used to provide a lot of jobs and economic opportunity. Not anymore. Solar is where the jobs are, where the growth is, where the opportunities lay, and it's a proving ground for tomorrow's leaders. Unexamined assumptions become dogma, and dogma is the opposite of intentionality. To be a good ancestor, we can't let anything hide. We must be explicit. Secondly, we must ask, 
What externalities are we creating? Externalities are those things that affect us or that we affect that are pushed out of our attention, whether by choice, neglect, or ignorance. Everything we do is part of a complex web, and nothing is completely external. Every Monday, a big green truck comes to take my trash away. But there really is no away. It takes my trash down to the landfill by the river. My children are going to have to deal with that landfill. Whenever you say, that's not my problem, you create an externality. And every externality is a hole in your boat. It's another way that bad ancestry creeps into your world. For example, there's a rideshare company that provides a great car hire experience for riders, but it regards the driver's welfare as someone else's problem. Drivers are forced into a precarious hand-to-mouth existence, degrading our civilization for everyone. Or how about the giant retailer that prides itself on offering the lowest prices to its shoppers? But it doesn't pay its employees a living wage. The employees are forced to rely on second jobs and food stamps. Machine learning algorithms, sometimes called AI, create significant externalities. Just letting the black box make decisions is an externality. Then, when we trust those decisions without having methods for oversight or validation, we create more externalities. Compounding the problem, most people are happy to abdicate their responsibilities to the algorithm. It seems easier, and it is, because it's an externalization. In the words of activist and author Virginia Eubanks, automated decision-making shatters the social safety net, criminalizes the poor, intensifies discrimination, and compromises our deepest national values. It reframes shared social decisions about who we are and who we want to be as though they were systems engineering problems. Externalities can hide in our point of view, in our ignorance, our social norms, and the systems that we create and use. In reality, everything is connected. There's no such thing as an externality. If you regard something as external, you're just bequeathing trouble to your descendants. You're slamming a door on a fire, but it's still burning in there, and you're leaving it for your children to put out. Thirdly, we must ask, what time scale are we using? What is the lifespan of our actions, our products, and their effects? Our tools for peering ahead are weak, so we design based on the way things are right now, even though our products will live on into the uncertain future. I'm a perfect example of this. Software that I wrote back in the 1970s conserved precious memory by using only two numbers for the year. The turn of the millennium, the year 2000, seemed very far away, uh, so I helped create the Y2K bug. All of our social systems bias us towards a presentist focus. Capitalist markets, rapid technological advance, professional reward systems, and industrial management. You have to ask yourself, how will this be used in 10 years, in 30? When will it die? What will happen to its users? To be a good ancestor, we have to look at the entire lifespan of our work. I know I said that there were three considerations, but there's a strong fourth one, too. Having established the three conduits for bad ancestry, assumptions, externalities, and timescale, we now need some tactical tools for ancestry thinking. Because it's a systems problem, individual people are rarely to blame. But people become representatives of the system. That is, the face of bad ancestry will be a person. 
So it takes some finesse to move in a positive direction without polarizing the situation. And you can see from the USA's current political situation how easy it is to slip into that polarization. The nice person behind the desk didn't create the department's policies. Your crazy uncle didn't write his political party's platform. It's not your fault that your company uses some heinous algorithms. You don't have to feel guilty about what your company is doing, and I don't expect you to confront your boss or your coworkers. But I do expect you to work diligently to raise everyone's awareness of the problem, and it's a never-ending job. Systems need constant work. John Gall's theory of general systematics says that systems failure is an intrinsic feature of systems. In other words, all systems go haywire and will continue to go haywire, and only constant vigilance can keep those systems working in a positive direction. You can't ignore systems. You have to ask questions. You have to probe constantly, deeply, and not accept rote answers. And when you detect bad assumptions, ignored side effects, or distortions of time, you have to ask the same questions of the others around you. You need to lead them through your thought process so they see the problem too. This is how you reveal the secret language of the system. You ask about the external forces at work on the system. Who is outside of the system? What do they think of it? What leverage do they have? How might they use the system and what is excluded from it? Ask about the impact of the system. Who is affected by it? What other systems are affected? What are the indirect long-term effects? And who gets left behind? Ask about the consent your system requires. Who agrees with what you are doing? Who disagrees? Who silently condones it? And who is ignorant of it? Ask who benefits from the system. Who makes money from it? Who loses money? Who gets promoted? And how does it affect the larger economy? And then ask about how the system can be misused. How can it be used to cheat, to steal, to confuse, to polarize, to alienate, to dominate, to terrify? And who might want to misuse it that way? What could they gain by it? And what could you lose? If you aren't asking questions like these regularly, you're probably building a leaky boat. Lately, I've been talking a lot about what I call working backwards. It's my preferred method of problem solving. In the conventional world, gnarly challenges are always presented from within a context, a framework of thinking about the problem. The given framework is almost always too small of a window. Sometimes it's the wrong window altogether. Viewed this way, your problems can seem inscrutable and unsolvable, a Gordian knot. Working backwards can be very effective in this situation. It's similar to Edward de Bono's notion of lateral thinking and Taichi Ono's idea of the five whys. Instead of addressing the problem in its familiar surroundings, you step backwards and examine the surroundings instead. Deconstructing and understanding the problem definition first is more productive than directly addressing the solution. Typically, the range of possible solutions are too limiting, too conventional, and suppress innovation. When the situation forces you to choose between option A and option B, the choice is almost always option C. If we don't work backwards, we tend to treat symptoms rather than causes. For example, we clamor for a cure for cancer, but we ignore the search for what causes cancer. We institute recycling programs, but we don't reduce our consumption of disposable plastic. We eat organic grains and meat, but we still grow them using profoundly unsustainable agricultural practices. The difficulty presented by working backwards is that it typically violates established boundaries. The encompassing framework is often in a different field of thought and authority. Most people 
when they detect such a boundary, refuse to cross it. They say, that's not my responsibility. Ah, but this is exactly what an externality looks like. A few years ago, a famous graphic by Tom Goodwin circulated on the web that said, in 2015, Uber, the world's largest taxi company, owns no vehicles. Facebook, the world's most popular media owner, creates no content. Alibaba, the most valuable retailer, has no inventory. And Airbnb, the world's largest accommodation provider, owns no real estate. The problem is that taxi companies are regulated by taxing and controlling vehicles. Media is controlled by regulating content. Retailing is controlled by taxing inventory and accommodations by taxing rooms. All of the governmental checks and balances are sidestepped by business model innovation. While old problems are fixed in an instant, new problems in new arenas take their place. We cannot protect ourselves against new negatives by legislating old symptoms and artifacts. Instead of legislating mechanisms, we have to legislate desired outcomes. The mechanisms may change frequently, they will change frequently, but the outcomes remain constant. The proper wording of the outcome that we all desire was well expressed 250 years ago in the preamble to the United States Constitution to promote the general welfare. And in that document, there's no mention whatsoever of shareholder value. So when the technical artifacts we create have profound effects in the social, economic, and political worlds, we are forced to own those worlds. If our products disrupt the worlds of politics and money, then we are responsible for the worlds of politics and money. We cannot ignore social norms, economic systems, and political regulation. Whether we sought that role or not, we practitioners are already political players, and it's time we acted that way. When we step backwards and see the magnitude of the challenge, it can certainly be daunting. One reaction to looking at the big picture is despair. When you realize that the whole machine is going in the wrong direction, it's easy to be overwhelmed with a fatalistic sense of doom. Another common reaction to seeing this elephant is denial. It makes you want to just put your head back down and concentrate on the wireframes. But those paths are the option A and the option B of the problem. I'm committed to option C. I want to fix the problem. The first step is to understand that nobody is going to do this for us. Even if you had nothing to do with creating the problem, you stand to lose a great deal if you don't help to fix it. We need to accept that while these product problems might not be our fault, it's our responsibility to fix them. We need to invent the tools we need to effectively turn the tech industry towards becoming a good ancestor. This is not a rebellion. These tools will be more of a dialectic than a street protest. We're playing the long game here. Our very powerlessness as individual practitioners makes us think that we can't change the system. We imagine that things are different for the powerful boss. We picture the CEO, Jack Dorsey, banning Nazis from Twitter, and thus, in a stroke, making everything better. This is a nice fantasy, but it's not actually true. Jack Dorsey is stuck in a dilemma he wishes desperately to get out of. If he bans Nazis, he asserts that censoring hate speech is Twitter's responsibility. And if he doesn't ban Nazis, he asserts that everyone will play nicely together. As soon as he bans a single Nazi, he opens himself up to a tsunami 
of criticism and lawsuits from those who think he's chosen too many Nazis and those who think he's chosen too few. The fact that his refusal to ban a Nazi is in itself a choice and opens him up to an equally large wave of criticism is why you don't want to be in his shoes. Dorsey is at the end of a whip, jerking back and forth. There's no good decision for him to make. He's looking down the barrel of option A and option B. So he does what's easiest, nothing. But you and I know that we have to do something. And the only correct answer is option C. Make no mistake about it. While Dorsey faces the twin evils of choices A and B, he isn't an evil person. And he's not guilty of any crime other than not thinking things through. And ultimately, that's the solution. Taking the time to think things through. Twitter's mess is pretty clearly Dorsey's fault. But he's refusing to take action. So as usual, it becomes our responsibility. Because there's no evil agenda, there's no anti-evil agenda either. This is all about our collective oversight and gentle intervention early in the process. When we stand in the center of North America, watching the mile-wide Mississippi River flow by, our powerlessness to affect the mighty waterway is tangible. But if we ascend to the continental divide at the crest of the Rocky Mountains, where the river rises, it's just a tiny rivulet. And we can divert the course of the Mississippi with a shovel. This is the nature of how we divert the course of the tech industry. Neither Jack nor any of us is going to fix Twitter's misbehavior with a single dramatic action. Twitter went off the rails one millimeter at a time, and the only way to put it back is with an equal number of tiny corrections. The way to vanquish evil is to find it at the source, in the headwaters, when it is a tiny and vulnerable thing. I don't mean to pick on Twitter or Jack Dorsey, but they're just a perfect example of the challenge that we face. Monitoring and curating an open public forum is hard, expensive work. Dorsey was an idealistic Silicon Valley entrepreneur, believing that he could create a fully automated platform that would police itself. For that to work, he had to ignore the real world behavior of anonymous strangers. He assumed that respectful public discourse would be self-perpetuating. He externalized responsibility for policing his forum. And he only thought about how things were right now. Like most libertarians, he failed to recognize how hard it is to be effortless and how much work goes into making sure that nasty people don't shout down nice people because nice people never shout down nasty people. And he's been in denial about that behavior since day one. Despite Jack Dorsey's role as CEO of Twitter, he lacks the power to fix it. He's as unable to change the course of a mighty river as anyone else inside his company. He has power, but he lacks agency. Remarkably, the most junior practitioner at Twitter while having none of Dorsey's power, has the exact same amount of agency. Now true, neither of them have much, but it's not zero. Power is the ability to change macrostructures. Agency works on the micro level. Agency is local, power is global. Power is being able to end homophobia. Agency is one person coming out of the closet. Power is banning Nazis from Twitter. Agency is one person pointing out that there's no mechanism in Twitter to identify suspected Nazis and that there should be one. Agency in its embryonic state manifests simply as talking. We ask questions, we seek explanations, we point out the considerations. But the more you talk, the more you get heard. 
And the more you get heard, the more influence you have. Agency grows the more you exercise it. You start by paying attention. This evolves into asking questions, which grows into discussions, followed by learning, then cooperation, then teamwork, and ultimately action. When you start a dialogue with people, you can make them think. You can show them a different point of view. Agency is a mirror you can hold up to your colleagues. It's an amplifier, a news feed, a loudspeaker, a book, a friend, and you create a relationship, and you become more human in their mind. Admittedly, this is a gradual process, an incremental process, but it's the only viable process, and it works in and for the long term. In 2016, I spoke with activist blogger Anil Dash about the state of the tech industry, and he posed a rhetorical question. Why aren't we teaching ethics in engineering schools? His challenge really got under my skin, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. But ethics, ooh, there's nothing more boring, useless, old, and pedantic. It's hard to imagine a subject less interesting than technology and the E-word. Now, fortuitously, I had recently been talking with folks at the engineering school at the University of California at Berkeley about teaching something there. Renato Verdugo, my new friend and collaborator, agreed to help. And last year, we completed co-teaching a semester-long class called Thinking Like a Good Ancestor at the Jacobs Institute for Design Innovation on the UC Berkeley campus. Renato works for Google, and they generously supported our work. Last week, we kicked off the second semester of the class, and this past Wednesday, Renato and I did something we weren't sure was possible at all, which we ran a seven-hour workshop here condensing a the entire semester into one day. And uh, some people who are at that uh, workshop are in the, it, it worked okay, see? See, we, we did it. A semester into seven hours. Thank you. So we're introducing our students to the fundamentals of how technology can lose its way, of awareness and intentionality. We're giving the students our taxonomy of assumptions, externalities, and time. Instead of focusing on how tech behaves badly, we're focusing on how good tech is allowed to become bad. We're not trying to patch the holes in the Titanic, but prevent them from occurring in future tech. So we're encouraging our students to exercise their personal agency. And we expect these brilliant young students at Berkeley and here to take ancestry thinking out into the world. And we expect them to make it a better place for all of our children. Okay. Like those students, we are the practitioners. We are the makers. We are the ones who design, develop, and deploy software-powered experiences. At the start of this talk, I ask you to imagine yourself as a tech practitioner witnessing your creations turned against our common good. Now I want you to imagine yourself creating products that can't be turned toward evil. Products that won't spy on you, won't addict you, and won't discriminate against you. More than anyone else, you have the power to create this reality because you have your hands on the technology. And I believe that the future is in the hands of the hands-on. Ultimately, we, the craftspeople, who make the artifacts of the future have more effect on the world than the business executives, the politicians, and the investment community. We are like the keystone in the arch. Without us, it all falls to the ground. While it may not be our fault that our products let evil leak in, it is certainly within our power to prevent it. The welfare of our children and their children is at stake, and taking care of our offspring is the best way to take care of ourselves. And we need to stand up and stand together, not in opposition, but as a light shining in a dark room. Because if we don't, we stand to lose everything. 
We need to harness our technology for good and prevent it from devouring us. I want you to understand the risks and know the inflection points. I want you to use your agency to sustain a dialogue with your colleagues, to work collectively and resent relentlessly. I want you to become an ancestry thinker. I want you to create products you can be proud of, products that make the world a better place instead of just making yet another billionaire. I want you to change the vision of success in tech from making money to making a just and equitable world for everyone. You have the power to do this with your leadership, your agency, and with your hands-on. You can be a good ancestor. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. If you have time, I have time. <laughs> if you don't have time, let's go have beer. <laughs> He's asking about questions. Oh, um, did I leave out the significant word? I yes. thought it was sex. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely need a drink first. Um, <laughs> thanks, Alan, thank you. Grab a, grab a seat and we'll, um, we'll get people their drinks. Okay. Yeah, let's do that. Thank you. Thank you Thank very you. much, I'm Alan. Happy to Thank talk you. With you out there. Thank you for listening to this presentation from UX Australia 2018. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.